to talk about sacrament. In the Church of the Nazarene, unlike, say, the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church has seven or eight sacraments, the Church of the Nazarene believes in two sacraments. These sacraments are things that Jesus Christ himself instituted and did and handed off to the church. We believe in baptism, and we believe in Holy Communion. And both of these are meant to be, I believe, response. Response to the grace of God given. Response to the message preached. Response to hearing what God is saying and seeing what God is doing. And so, interestingly enough, in, uh, I did an interview of about 19 different people in the congregation before this series started for the project I'm doing to hear and listen to the thoughts of what people had on the sacraments. And um, the responses were typical Nazarene responses, so good for you guys. However, there's a part of me that thinks that our typical Nazarene response has been a bit jaded and a bit off-center, and that now may be a great time in the history of our church for us to have a renewal of sacramental thinking, particularly, again, because the sacraments are things that Jesus himself instituted, which gives me the idea that maybe this stuff is pretty important. (laughs) And so perhaps now, and I I see it across our church, is a time for us to say, hey, let's again jump into this sacramental stuff isn't something that the Catholics own. We believe that we are a legitimate church in the history of Christ's movement in the world, right? So maybe we should do the legitimate things that Jesus did. I think that's an awesome idea. And so, so I asked, for example, how many times do you think someone should be baptized? And only one person said to me once, period. One person. And, and the thing that came after that that was normal was, well, you know, a lot of times people kind of fall away from their baptism and they, they spend a season in sin. And, and if they want to come back and, and be baptized again, I don't see a problem with that. Well, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a really well-thought-out, reasonable answer. There's, there's not necessarily something wrong with that. We do, however, confess historically in the creeds that there is one baptism. And so what, what is it that's happened between this idea that the, the traditional historic faith has said one baptism, and we now say, well, you know, I mean, like if you've had a meaningful reconnection with God, then maybe you should have another baptism. What, what's happened between then? Or how about this? I asked the question of, of people. Again, this is just a sampling of multiple generations, male and female, uh, recent Nazarenes, longtime Nazarenes. I tried to get a real feel for the congregation as currently is. And, and I asked, how often should we have communion? How often should we have communion? And again, only one or two people said, every week. Uh, a lot of people said, I think we do it too often. A lot, most people said, I think that once a month is about right. That was the, that was the typical sort of response. Okay, again, reasonable, well thought out, grounded in experience, thoughtful answers. There's nothing inherently wrong with any of those answers. This is really interesting to, to hear the response of what people think and are thinking about this sort of thing. And so, so that began to cause me to think as, as we do response. I estimate when I talk to people that we do communion between 30 and 35 times a year here, which is heavy in a 52 Sunday calendar year, 35 or so um, things. Now, I do make sure every week to do some sort of response. At different times, we've had a time for you to come and take Legos. At different times, we've had 
a one in 100 response. We've had faith promise response. We've had altar response. We try to do every single week that we have the spoken word of the gospel followed by an opportunity for you all to respond. And I always try to make it so that you actually have to get off your bottom and walk forward to respond. Because I think it's very important that we don't just check off a box in our mind, but that our physical body responds to the gospel that's preached. That we take a stand by literally standing and moving in the direction of God. I think that's very important. But again, the history of the church until just very recently has been communion is taken every week. It's non-negotiable. It's a part of the service. And so now there's scholarship asking, thinking about worship service, saying, what has happened there? Why is it that we don't take communion every week? There are some cynical scholars that say, well, music has become the sacrament of choice of many free church Protestants. And I'll give you an example. If I told you in response, you know, I'm afraid that music could lead, lose its meaning. So let's do it once a month to make sure that it stays special. There would be a riot. <laughs> but yet we've come to the point of this very important meal that Jesus himself handed on to his believers. And we've begun to sort of think of it as about me about what I feel. And if I feel something or don't feel something, that's exactly how I judge whether or not it's important. And so we have sort of taken this idea of sacrament, the gift that Christ himself instituted and gave to the church in both baptism and communion. And we have arrived at the place where we have said, my feeling is king. What I feel, what I experience validates it or not. And yet it's bizarre in some ways that we do that because our life is made up, our personality is shaped, our routine is designed after the mundane. So much about our life is mundane and routine and boring. And yet if we really had to sit down and describe who we are and what we do, we would have to point to the mundane in order to describe it. I get up in the morning, I go to work, I have lunch, I go home, I talk to my children, I tuck them into bed, I have a conversation with my spouse, we watch our DVR shows, we go to bed. It's mundane and boring, and yet it's so formative to our story and who we are. And I wonder if we've become uncomfortable in a world where we're constantly plugged in, we're constantly able to be entertained, we have more money than people have had in the history of the world, and so we can entertain ourselves for $5 or less. We expect to feel something with every last thing that we do. And yet, we're so often who we are because of what we do in the mundane. It is our meals that give us health. And yet we would never skip a meal because it was boring. It is our interaction with friends and family. Oftentimes we talk about how much we love our friends because we can be bored with them and still feel as though we had a good time. And yet we would never deprive ourselves of our times with friends and family. And so perhaps it's important for us to turn back and look at the sacraments and say, what if I saw this not so much about me interacting with the sacraments, but imagining what God is doing to me through it. 
that perhaps it is we should be baptized once in our lives because it is God's activity and not mine. I am simply responding to what God is doing in the world. And so if I stray with my life, I don't need to be rebaptized because God has not moved. God has remained the same and in the same place in the same sense of covenant that he was when I came to the baptismal font 10 years ago, two months ago, 50 years ago. God has remained faithful through it all. It is I who have strayed. And so maybe there's a better way for us to say, I am back, than going back to a sacrament, which is supposed to be what God is doing, not what I am doing. Perhaps it is coming to the table that we should be more excited each and every time we can come to the table. Because it is Jesus himself, we believe, who has prepared this table. He has set the feast hours before he died for the sake of his believers to come and sup with him. And so we come to the table, hopefully regularly, in anticipation that we get to share a meal with him. When you go and read the Gospels, Jesus is sitting down to have a meal with people all the time. And who it is that Jesus sits with is vitally important to the Gospel story. And if you were to start reading through the table scenes where Jesus is having a meal with people, you would find that most regularly he's with people who are unworthy. They don't belong at his table. The Pharisees and the holy people are upset because they feel they're good enough to sit at the table with Jesus. But instead, he's constantly inviting tax collectors and sinners, people who don't measure up, people who could use a shower, people who are kind of embarrassing, people who keep making the same mistake over and over and just can't get themselves pulled up by their bootstraps. He keeps inviting them to his table to have a meal with him. And perhaps when it is that we open up the Lord's table and we pray over it and we read scripture we're inviting the actual presence of Christ, who we believe is alive, to come and be amongst us. Now, the Catholics talk about transubstantiation, that they believe that when they pray over the meal, it becomes the actual body and blood of Christ. That's, that's not really what we believe here, but what we do believe in the Protestant tradition is that when we open the table, the presence of Christ does come to dwell amongst us. That Christ is here, and that he is giving himself, his body and his blood, once again to us. That he wants us to come and feast on him. Now, there's a saying in our society that you are what you eat. And many of you kind of look like turkeys today. (laughs) Groan, 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 I know. The statement really is referring to that if you eat healthy foods, you'll be healthy. If you eat unhealthy foods, you will be unhealthy. That makes a lot of sense. But what if when we come to the table, we owned that statement afresh and said that when we opened this up and we took the bread and the wine and we said, I am what I eat and what I eat today is the body and blood of Christ. And so this song is an important song for us. The line that I love says, holiness is Christ in me. And so we recognize that when we come to the table in communion, that it is the meal of sanctification, that upon giving our lives to Christ and allowing him to save us and cleanse us and remove sin from our lives, we come to this table because we put the body and blood of Christ so that Christ can live and dwell in us. We are what we eat. This meal of sanctification is the receiving of his body and blood into our body so that it becomes a part of us, a physical part of us. Christ consumes us into his body and we consume his body into ours. 
This is an important thing to understand. If we want to be a sanctified, holy people, I think it's very, very valuable for us to come to the body and blood of Christ and invite it into our bodies, reminding us that it is only through Christ that we can possibly become holy. We cannot work harder. We cannot imagine ourselves better and then work towards our goal. We only become holy through the grace of God. And we become holy by receiving that grace. And the table, I feel, is perhaps the best place for us to possibly do that. Now, there's another metaphor that we talk about in our society today. One is you are what you eat. And another one is the idea of bad blood. I've got bad blood with him. They've got bad blood between each other. We talk about it in a way that says uh, they're angry with each other when they have bad blood. They're, they're frustrated. They're mad at each other. They don't like each other. There's bad blood between them. And today, while we talk about communion in particular, we talk about good, glo- good blood, blood that restores blood that renews, blood that fixes relationships. But our society likes to talk about bad blood. They don't like good blood. They like bad blood. They like a good scandal. They like it when TMZ lights up with a celebrity feud. We like it whenever there's anger between friends. We like to, we like to see cops fighting with people in the streets and pulling out our cell phones and posting on CNN. We like it when there's bad blood. We get excited when there's drama and fighting between people. And that song has been recently, or that idea has been recently captured in a Taylor Swift song called Bad Blood. So listen to this song that our band is going to play and think about how our society just loves a good fight. Loves to, they don't like to fight, but they like to see other people fight. And listen to the drama in this song of the disdain and distaste for each other. Taylor Swift, ladies and gentlemen.
That song spent the whole summer of 2015 number one on every chart. All right, this song was a huge, huge cultural moment of this calendar year in our life. And the idea behind the song is, it, it, it's, it's terrible, it's, it's sad, it's awful. Band-aids don't fix bullet holes? Ouch! I, I, mean, I mean, seriously, the, the, the anger and frustration here in this song is just tangible. And, and, and we love songs like this. We, I mean, people, I, I just imagine like preteen girls playing this song, thinking about the girl that sent the mean text about them at school. We love rivalry. We love anger. We love being frustrated. And we particularly love seeing other people sort of stir the pot of drama. We love it. Uh, millions of dollars are made every year on drama and people's misfortune. Now, what's disturbing or scary is that this song could be sang in most every church and celebrated. Now, not because they really want to speak it, but so many churches have people sitting in the very same sanctuary where they have bad blood between them. And this is not a new problem. This isn't a problem that's developed in America, not at all. In fact, the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that had very bad blood between it. And he had to sort of sort out the issues of how people were treating each other in the church and then how they would come to communion. Now, I read, when we do communion, I read from 1 Corinthians 11, and I'll be reading those words today, but in a greater context. And to some degree, us today, 2015, we have a great debt to pay to the dramatic church of Corinth because we have for us developed sort of a theology of how the church comes together to take communion because they were kind of dysfunctional and had bad blood. So fortunately for us, we can read this and sort of begin to think through how it is we should take communion in the world today. So we're sort of indebted to them. But at the same time, Paul is very frustrated. And he sort of lays out three different things that they need to think about that then we can also think about as well when they come to the table. And so Paul is pretty tough on the Corinthians because of how they're taking communion. If I can set the scene before we read it real fast, I think this is important. Uh, churches didn't meet in nice cathedrals or even good sanctuaries like what they do today. They would often meet, often secretly, in the house of someone, they would gather together and have a, a feast together. The, the meal itself would be understood as communion because they would fill themselves with food and the doing it in, in love with each other and when sharing with each other was all uh, sort of a throwback and a reminder to the Last Supper that Christ had where they would sit and have a full meal, a Passover meal with each other. They would celebrate that week after week after week. They would sing together they would read some scriptures if they had received scriptures into their church, and they would have a short talk and they would leave. This is what they did. Now, in Corinth, in their house church, they were meeting together. They were, they were getting together, and what was happening was the rich people would bring more food, and they would take more for themselves and go to a different room. The poor people would kind of have to scrape together what was left over, they would be sent to another room. There were distinctions being made on, on class and gender and friendships, and people weren't eating together. And Paul was very frustrated about this because they had missed the points of the supper that Jesus had instituted. And so he writes this instruction to them. Now, if you've read 1 Corinthians lately, you know that Paul has kind of ticked at them in general. But this is one of the sort of like the peak moments that Paul is frustrated with. Where he begins to give instructions. 
And after this, he talks about spiritual gifts and then love. So he starts from here, offering a prescription to fix the bad blood between the people in this church. And for him, the prescription for the bad blood is the good blood of Jesus Christ, which forgives. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs like the Taylor Swift song does. It doesn't lob accusations and start fights. It's steady, it's present, it's forgiving, and it keeps coming at you no matter how far you are straying. And so if we could, let's read this story together, uh, this letter. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 to 34. If you would join me in standing as we read the word of the Lord today. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. Your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? And humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I receive from the Lord what I pass on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks he broke it and said. This is my body. Which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper he took the cup saying. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he comes to the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who drinks, eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are sick and weak, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not have come under judgment. But if we judged ourselves, we would not have come under judgment. That's an important line. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, they should eat at their home. So that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. You may be seated. There are three basic divisions and instructions that are happening here. The first is this, is that uh, the Lord's table must express the community's unity as the new covenant people of God. You may recall that, uh, that God, in his first real act of salvation, his major act of salvation, he calls the people of Israel out of Egypt and away from slavery into or towards a promised land. Jesus, when he has the Lord's Supper, is celebrating that Passover, that gift of grace. And so God didn't just call a few people who seemed the most important to him. 
He called the entire community, the good, the bad, the frustrating, the good-looking, the rich, the poor. He gathered them all together and brought them to the promised land. And so it is when we have this meal as well. It's an expression that we are the new covenant people of God. We are doing this together, and that's vitally important. We should be keenly aware of who it is we take this with to make sure that we are in unity with them. We don't always have to think they're perfect. But yet we're invited this meal to recall the deep love of God for us and imagine how it is that we should be loving to those around us as well. The second is this. The Lord's Supper focuses on the church's memory of Jesus' death. We recall that the Lord Jesus Christ died on our behalf, that he bled, he suffered, and we should take time to remember that as well. And finally, the Lord's Supper is an occasion for us to ponder God's judgment, that indeed God is a God who judges. Now, that doesn't necessarily have to be scary because a judge can judge you innocent, right? So oftentimes when we think of God's judgment, we get scared. Oh my goodness, what's he going to say? I'm such a mess. I've made so many mistakes. And when we understand ourselves to be standing before the judge one day, we don't have to cower in fear near as much as we can grasp this cup and this bread and be thankful for the grace that makes the difference between how far we can get on our own and where God is inviting us to be. We receive grace and we understand as we take this meal, not I don't live up to what God is calling us to be. Guess what? You don't. I don't. We don't. But as we receive this, we recall just how powerful the grace of God is, that it is shaping us to be like Christ and that we can't ourselves make a cognitive decision to say, hey, I'd like to be more Christ-like, and then off we go into the sinful, sinless life. But on the other hand, we continue to come to the broken and wounded body of Christ and receive it and find the more and more Christ that we receive into our lives, the more and more he shapes and forms us to be a holy person. And the more and more Christ that we receive in our lives, the less and less we desire to sin. And that is the work of grace in our life. One of the best sort of movie moments that I think inspires this idea is the movie Field of Dreams. I love the field, movie Field of Dreams because I love baseball. And so it, it's a pretty awesome movie. And, and you guys should know the setting of the movie. A, a man starts hearing a voice call to him to, if you build it, they will come. And he begins to build in his cornfield, a baseball field. No one lives within like 10 miles in any direction of him. And so it's just a nonsensical call upon his life. He does not understand at all why it is he's supposed to build a baseball field in his backyard. But he begins to plow corn out and lay sod and create a baseball field. And as the baseball field is created, uh, out comes shoeless Joe Jackson, the the disgraced baseball player who was kicked out of baseball for being accused of throwing a World Series and accepting money. And finally, shoeless Joe Jackson, who's now long been dead, has a place to play ball. And he begins to bring other ancient ball players, and they play. And, and then Ray, who's hearing these voices, has to go and find this guy in Boston, uh, Moonlight Graham, and he brings him back. And, and slowly as the movie goes, more and more the pieces are beginning to be put together for him for what's happening. And his brother, who had been cynical the whole time, sees the baseball players play, and he's just amazed at the possibilities, and, and suddenly he becomes supportive. And this sort of final game ends up happening where all these people come out, and Ray, the man who built 
the baseball field, sees that one of the men who's come to play is his father. And he's just completely flabbergasted to see his dad as a young man. And, and he asks his wife, what should I do? And his wife says, well, I don't know, introduce him to your granddaughter. And so he, he does. He introduces him to the granddaughter, and they have this really sort of awkward exchange as Ray is just excited and not real sure if his dad recognizes that it's, it's, it's him, his son. And so they talk and they talk, and dad turns around to walk away, and Ray does this. Let's watch the video clip together. You catch a good game. Thank you. It's so beautiful here. For me, well, for me, it's like a dream come true. Can I ask you something? Is this heaven? It's Iowa. Iowa? dreams come true. So that's an exceptionally bad theology of heaven. Start there. The place dreams come true. That's Disney World, not heaven. All right? However, there's something beautiful about that moment that can help us here. This idea, this, this moment where, where they get lost in the delight of being with each other, of seeing each other in ways that were unexpected, that, that they can't decipher between what is heaven and what is Iowa. 
They can't decipher between what is real and what is tangible and about what is the delight of the world to come. And that is the moment that communion should be for us as a response. That that we believe that, that Christ has died and been resurrected and has gone away and is working to prepare a banquet table to receive us and to dine with us at this final place to celebrate all that is, all that God has made, all that Christ is in our arrival into his home. And when we come to the table, we get a foretaste of that. We get a foretaste of that heavenly banquet. We have a moment where heaven crashes into earth where we no longer know if this is real life or this is God's design. We sit at his everlasting table and receive his gift of his body and blood. And it just for a moment, you can begin to wonder, am I in Maine or am I in heaven? And the answer hopefully will be yes. Yes, we are We are in this world. We are here. We are God's creation, and it is good. It's also hard, and we don't quite live up to all that God desires us to be. However, heaven breaks into our very sanctuary, and the presence of God comes in a mysterious way into the body and blood, or the bread and the cup that we take. And we taste just a little bit, just a foretaste, almost an appetizer of what heaven will be like. Because we experience the grace of God open up like a wild river running loose, coming and pouring over us. And we feel the presence of Christ and the grace that is his. And we say, it's not about me, it's about you. And what you do makes me into something incredible because of how incredible you are. And this moment of response is an incredible, mysterious, emotional confusing, exciting, magnificent moment where heaven crashes into earth and we are lost in the glory of God. And it's so very tangible and simple, mundane. It may not be meaningful this time, but it may be meaningful next time to you. But yet every time it's Christ's invitation for you to come to his table, for you to receive his gift to you, And an invitation to go changed because you have come into contact with the living, breathing, resurrected Lord of this world. And so today, as we conclude, the band's coming and our usher is coming. My hope is, my hope is, I got to admit that I was most nervous about this one of all of the different uh, sermons that I'm going to do. Because I had so much to say and the place that I've arrived took like eight years of school to kind of shape me in. And so how in the world am I going to make an argument in 30 minutes that becomes convincing? I have no idea. But I was really excited to talk about this too, because I believe it's important. I believe it's important that we respond to the spoken word. And I believe the best way to respond to the spoken word most often is for us to come and receive this incredible grace where God breaks into our sanctuary and consume the presence of Christ into our body, that it would become a part of who we are. And I hope today that maybe with just a slightly different understanding, maybe you heard something that you could grasp on today. I I hope that today we can begin to move past what we feel when we receive communion and we can begin to focus on who it is that God is and what it is that he's doing to us. And we can begin to see that that never loses its meaning. Ever, ever. And so... um,
The band is going to play a song. Uh, would you return to your seat and sit down? We're going to do a responsive reading. I used to do responsive readings when I was a kid in the Church of the Nazarene. And so since I read the text, I usually read we're going to do something different. And so receive your elements, go and sit down, and we're going to do a responsive reading together before we take the elements. So as the band begins to play, I invite you to stand and come and take uh, the body and blood of our Lord.